It's um, a pleasure for me to introduce our speaker today. Um, I printed his CV so that I could get all the initials in his name. A lot of Fs there. A lot of Fs. Um, I was going to say, I'm going to keep it, I'll keep it clean, I promise you. Okay? But, uh, it's a pleasure because of multiple reasons, but um, primarily because we've been friends since, um, since 1998 when we started med school down in the Caribbean together at St. George's University, and then matched at the same residency program, and then Chris took a detour and did ID fellowship. Um, and I went to go do pulmonary critical care fellowship, and then he decided and saw the light and did pulmonary critical care fellowship after his ID fellowship, and uh, and now is the um, associate program director for pulmonary critical care at Washington Hospital Center, is the associate program director for internal medicine at Washington Hospital Center, is an adjunct faculty member at George Washington University as well as Georgetown, um, so he wears a lot of hats and titles, um, but a, a very unique perspective on taking care of HIV in critically ill patients because he has both kind of sets of both skill sets. So today, without further ado, my friend Chris Woods here to talk to us. Thanks, Chris, for coming 80 miles to talk to us. That's fine. So I, I do see a lot of friendly faces. So I do remember at least faces from the winter and summer education blocks. Um, I'll thank Nirov and Mike for having me up. I'll thank Nirov for the tie. So if you like the tie, this was a gift for my 40th birthday from Nirov. So I wore it today. And the cufflinks. So, and the, oh, and the cufflinks. So. <laughs> All right. So um, before I start, I think, who's, who's ID trained? I know we have at least two people, right? Or just one person? No ID trained people? They're on service. Okay, no problems. Then I can, Say whatever then I'm not worried about what I talk about. No, but in all honesty, this is a topic, I enjoy talking about it because we're seeing HIV folks in the unit for different reasons than if we went back 15, 20 years ago. And there's not a lot of evidence behind it. So I can say whatever I want, and it's my opinion, and there's very little. So this was set up to be an um, audience response. We're not going to do audience response so we can record and you guys can go back and have it. So we're going to have to do show of hands, which is OK. We're a small group. So I'll start. That's my disclosure. I haven't done that for about two years, but I have to leave it on there for three. They don't make any HIV meds, so I promise you that there are no um, competing interests there. So my objectives, we'll go through epidemiology in DC, which kind of mirrors the epidemiology in Baltimore. Big inner city, urban center, same. We'll go through um, at least my approach to the critically ill HIV positive patient. And then I'll try to emphasize the importance of looking at the med list, look at the meds you're gonna add on and looking for drug-drug interactions. That's probably the most painful part of taking care of HIV in the unit. Not a lot of liquid slash IV formulations, what interacts with what, so we'll spend a little bit of time. Um, epi, I'm not an epidemiologist, it's four slides, so it's not too bad. Um, this is DC, like I said, it'll mirror what you see in Baltimore. But if you look, what I would point out, the green line up top, that's the number of people living with DC, so we, uh, living with HIV in DC, so it creeps up as years go by. Interestingly, the newly diagnosed drop down, now that might be, I don't think it's less testing, because there's a pretty good push for testing, so maybe the message is getting out and then less death. So it means we're doing a better job taking care of HIV, they're living longer, hence they're gonna come into the hospital, into clinic with their other comorbidities. Um, if we look at age, this sort of surprised me with the first time I looked at it, the big bulk of patients, so you could see 40 to 49, about six and a half percent infected in DC, 50 to 59, five and a half, they make up the bulk. I would have thought it was, you would think the younger 20, 30, 30, 40. I think it's also, these are the people that seek out healthcare and we don't get the 20 to 30 year olds coming in unless they get diagnosed for some other reason. 
Remember, you can live a long time with HIV until you show symptoms. So if they don't know they're sick, they're not coming in. Our population doesn't get routine physicals usually, or at least the majority of them. The other scary part is if you look at the red line, the overall prevalence in DC is 2.5%. That's for those that are known to be diagnosed. The guesstimation is it's probably 5% if you count the undiagnosed people. So it would mean one in 20 people in DC may be harboring the HIV virus. Um, if you look by race and ethnicity, probably no surprise. And at least in DC, the black males make up the largest percent of the population, um, followed by Hispanic males, and it sort of makes its way down. The point I always point out is the black females actually run concordant with our white male. So it, it really is um, predominantly seen in some races, unfortunately. This is a map of DC. This is what I usually talk about with my fellows. There's no safe zone, and that's the problem. So for us in DC, this is sort of southeast. That's where south of the Anacostia River, that's sort of the lower income areas. Not surprisingly, they have the highest rate. But if you look at even the more affluent areas, this is up by the National Zoo, if you've ever been there, Cleveland Park, really expensive real estate, still a pretty high level. So there really is no, in the inner city, there is no safe zone. I could tell you I live 40 minutes from the hospital or 40 miles out in Leesburg, Loudoun County, nice area, still decent rates of HIV out there. So it's not safe anywhere. All right, so let's shift away from epi and go on to caring for the critically ill patient. I put this in, this is sort of, how I think of HIV now versus 20 years ago when patients were coming in with respiratory failure, PCP, we'll still see PCP. It's not gone, but this is the more common. So I give you the 65-year-old man with HIV, but as you can see, very well controlled, good CD4, undetectable viral load, but he carries all the comorbidities, COPD, diabetes, hypertension, um, and he comes in with respiratory distress, discount exertion, shortness of breath for four days, short-winded, wheezing, so he's having a COPD exacerbation. Gets, gets tubed in the ED, and that's how he ends up to us. And that's what I'm seeing more and more of. I'm seeing the people with HIV coming in for the non-opportunistic infections, the heart disease, the COPD, lung cancer, higher risk of COPD just from having HIV, higher risk of lung cancer from having HIV, sort of independent predictors despite um, irrespective of tobacco abuse. Um, this is a nice piece from the New England Journal. It's a little old now, but it still reflects what's going on. If you go back to the 80s when we first had the diagnosis of HIV, you can see respiratory failure was the biggest cause, and that was all PCP. Still a lot of respiratory failure, but it's dropped about 20%. That's because PCP rates have gone down. We still have the COPD. We're seeing more of that. We still have the heart failure. We still have other things. Other things are, are catching up. So it's just a nice slide that shows the opportunistic infections are probably not the main reason they're coming in nowadays. Um, table format, same thing. If you look in the red, it just shows you if you compare 2000, which is here to 2004, the admissions for respiratory failure dropped by about 20%. And if you look for PCP diagnosis, they've dropped too. So we're seeing people, I sound like a broken record, but we're seeing people for different reasons now. They're coming in with longstanding problems. So this is audience participation time. So I give you a 32-year-old man with HIV brought in by ambulance for distress, four weeks of nonproductive cough, dyspnea on exertion that progressed to dyspnea at rest. He's got subjective fevers. His HIV was diagnosed eight years ago, but unfortunately due to insurance reason, no medical care, no antiretrovirals for the past two years. No other past medical or hospitalizations. Nobody's sick. He works at a, he's a cashier at a giant. 
lives in an apartment with his partner, no habits except for the occasional beer, and nothing except for what I told you in the HPI. So you see him, he's febrile, he's tachycardic, borderline hypotensive and tachypnic, satting really poorly on 100% non-rebreather. He looks chronically ill, he's got oral thrush, sounds rockers throughout, and he's using all his, his accessories. Cardiac exam, except for being tachycardic, is normal. That's his x-ray, probably not surprising to any of us. So my question was, in addition to community-acquired pneumonia coverage, what else would be most appropriate for him? So put him in airborne and start him on, on ripe therapy, start him on uh, Bactrim DS2TID, start him on AMFOB, or put him in airborne, sort of do the TB rule out, start him on IV Bactrim and prednisone. Who likes A? Who likes B? Who likes D? Okay, I wanted to try to trick you guys. So everybody likes D, I think. So yeah, so all of, all of the recommendations I'm gonna take, that is where the evidence is, how to treat things. That's gonna come from um, the guidelines that come out of the CDC and basically driven by NIH. So treatment recs, moderate to severe, you could go with the, with the PO Bactrim. I mean, sorry, moderate to severe, we have to go with the IV Bactrim like our patient. Dosing's not important, you could look up dosing on your smartphones. The important part and the question I get often is what about the patient who was on Bactrim Profi? Most of the time, in honesty, they probably weren't taking it consistently because it works pretty well. But if they were, there's actually nice studies that show they will respond to Bactrim therapy still with the higher dosage. If it was mild to moderate, which our patient is not because of the high AA gradient and the very low SATs, you could have gotten away with oral. Um, how about steroids? We know the cutoffs, but it's an ABG less than, um, PO2 on an ABG less than 70 which corresponds to a rumeric sat of about 93. And then there's your gradient. And I'll show you the data behind this. This is one that does have data. This regimen was chosen for a reason. So there's one paper that they use this regimen, and that sort of has become the dogma. First study, interesting, this was back, um, Montagne was one of the guys who was involved in discovering HIV. So he was also the first one to publish a paper looking at corticosteroids for treatment of severe pneumocystis. He did a double blind. He basically took anybody with first episode of PCP, not recurrence, kicked out the people who couldn't get steroids. You couldn't have been on treatment for more than 48, and he picked a lower O2 set. He picked 85% or less than 90 with, with, um, with activity. And he basically split them into PRED 60 for a week, and then he tapered them. This is not where it comes from. He sort of made up his own tapering. But it was interesting, small study, but it sparked a larger one, I'm gonna tell you. Eight of nine people who got placebo with their, with their Bactrim did not do very well. They deteriorated very early, and that's more inflammatory, right? We all know when you treat pneumocystis in the beginning, I liken it to a jarrick hersheimer reaction with syphilis, you sort of get killing, you get a lot of inflammation. That's what the steroids are doing. Only one person in the corticosteroid group actually deteriorated. Um, so odds ratio is quite wide. You only had 18 people in there, or 37 total. But all eight patients who were in the non-steroid group got steroids and did better. So based on that, the thought was steroids are going to help. The big group, the CC, uh, CCTG, which is a big collaborative for AIDS out in California, they did the larger study. So they had a little over 300 patients with AIDS and PCP. 
This is where our 40 for five days, 40 for uh, 40 BID for five, 40 once daily for five, and then the 20 for 11 come from. They use that, and without even going into numbers, you could see on the Kaplan-Myers the big difference. On the left, it's uh, those who went into respiratory failure, and on the right, or on my right at least, or your right, it's the people who uh, had uh, died or had mortality. So basically, have the respiratory failure rate, have the mortality rate if you gave those people steroids. So we get this off, and you can look this up, but what if the patient has a sulfa allergy? So I said, give them Bactrim anyway. Start Dapsone and Trimethoprim. Give them IV pentamidine, or just call IV. Taking four off the table. Who wants to just give Bactrim anyway? Who wants to give Dapsone and Trimethoprim? Okay. And who wants to give IV, IV pentamidine? Okay, so I'd say if it wasn't a severely ill patient like our guy, both answers would be right. If you look at the guidelines, they're gonna tell you if it's moderate to severe, your two choices are IV pentamidine. That's where we have to know the drug because they should be with us either in a ICU or at least a step-down unit if you guys have intermediate care units too. They run the risk of QT prolongation, so I have seen people go into torsades on pentamidine and their sugars actually bounce all over the place, so you have to do Q2 hour checks in the beginning or you could give uh, primaquin and clindamycin. If it was mild to moderate, that's where the trimethoprim and dapsone fits in. Same choice as above here, or atovaquone. So the big thing is if somebody's really sick coming to you, has PCP, can't get Bactrim, it's pentamidine, would be the thought. Unless you can get an NG and get this through. No good studies that show one is better than the other there. Okay. So he requires emergent intubation. We're not surprised. I think he was satting 92 on 100% non-rebreather. We start him on community-acquired treatment with ceftriaxone and azithro. He gets his IV Bactrim, and we start him on prednisone. Hospital day four, he's satting 95 on a cis-control volume cycled with a volume of 450, a rate of 18, FiO2 of 50, and a PEEP of 5. Peaks are 35, plats are 28. You're called two hours later because he's more hypoxic and his vent is alarming, satting 88 on the same settings, but his peaks are now 55 and his plats are 47. So what happened? He developed bronchospasm, he developed a pneumothorax, increased secretions in the tube, or he's biting the tube. Who likes A? Who likes B? It's too easy. <laughs> Who likes C? And nobody likes D. All right. Could be, but it's the pressures. So you guys know this inside and out. I use this for my medicine folks or my residents who don't understand pressures very well. Obviously, peak is the large airway. Plat is down at the alveoli. We all remember from everyone had Dr. Lee doing the same lecture. So it's what are the five things that affect peak pressure? What are the three that affect plateau? If they both go up, it has to be one of these, right? We didn't change his tidal volume. We didn't change his set peep at least. So most likely his compliance has changed. And this is a real patient. This was that was his x-ray. Not surprising to us. So he got a very rapidly placed chest tube. Yeah, not rapid enough to get an x-ray showing the rapidly after the x-ray. <laughs> so now I remember why I don't like working with you. Okay. So, so. So I include this, it's from here, this paper. So you guys may know the folks, I don't. If you know any of the names, it's a little older. 
So it's Tamborello, Tacanelli, Paranti, Cotta, and Ortona. No? All right. So it was a retrospective looking at the incidents and outcomes of pneumothorax in folks with HIV. They had over 1,800 HIV-positive patients, and they said it was from here, from 87 to 93, okay? They identified 60 pneumothoraces in 39 patients, so that was roughly a little, about 2% of the patients with HIV had a pneumothorax. They took out the trauma ones, which were 32%. And they looked at the spontaneous, and what they found was majority of the spontaneous, over 80%, had acute or recent PCP. And then they took one step further and said, what is it due to mortality? So if you had HIV, had a pneumothorax, and you happen to have PCP, your mortality was about 50% versus not having a PCP where it was 25% if you were just HIV with a pneumothorax, whether it be from trauma. So it's an indicate, probably PCP is a very poor prognostic factor for HIV is what we're going to say, especially if you're poor and um, sick enough to end up with a pneumothorax. Why? Because that's what it does. So this, the aerosolized pentaminine, I'm not talking about it, but it's an important point. It was used a lot for prophylaxis, still is sometimes. Problem is it doesn't usually get much into the apices. So we've definitely seen PCP on someone with IV pentaminine restricted to the apices. In my experience, this is sort of the bad case. I usually see them in the periphery, and I think that's, I don't know if that's just me or the data, but that's why I think we do get a lot of pneumothoraces out in the periphery, too. I bring this up because I've had a very poor experience with ECMO. Not, not a large experience, zero for two. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is the only paper. Now, there may be something in the past six months, and I'm sorry, preparing for site visit, didn't have time to look in the past six months. This is the only paper I found about six months ago. So it looked at the use of ECMO in folks with pneumocystis. So it means if you have people you're putting on, save them. You could probably do a nice case series or add on to a review of the literature. Um, they only had five folks. You could see some people went on as early as three days, which I usually think would favor you doing better. If you're gonna, I'm a big proponent. If you're going to get there, get there earlier. I think you have a better chance of than using as a rescue tool. Some people got there very late. The two that got there somewhat early, two out of five lived. I've been zero for two. But I'll tell you, in my instances, as the ID consultant, not on the critical care, and they got there pretty late. They got there a week in, 10 days in, maybe horses out of the barn already. It, that's also, that is the other way to look at it. Potentially, they would have done fine with uh, conventional mechanical ventilation. So I'm definitely not pushing for it. All right. Any questions PCP-wise before we move on? Okay. So case two, I give you a 45-year-old gentleman found un unresponsive on the street. Can't give you a review of systems or a history because he's altered. But we do have past ED visits that note he is, has a diagnosis of HIV. He's febrile, tachycardic, blood pressure's somewhat okay, and his oxygenation and rate aren't bad. But his GCS is seven, he's got rigidity, nothing else on his exam. Intubated for airway protection, CT's normal, he gets LP'd. There's an opening pressure of 50, 17 whites, and you can see the breakdown, low glucose, slightly high protein, and we send everything off. Um, nothing that impressive on the serum except for he's leukopenic, which it may not be surprising. So I said, in addition to bacterial meningitis coverage, which of the following should we start empirically? Fucytosine, fluconazole, um, highly active antiretroviral therapy, 
liposomal AMFO-B with fusitacine, acyclovir, or lipo, uh, liposomal amphotericin, fusitacine, and antiretroviral therapy. Who likes A alone? Who likes B alone? Who likes C alone? Who likes D? Okay, I have some Ds. Who likes E? Who likes F? All right, so what I figured, probably a mix between D and F. So that there is some data for. So this is not my opinion. We'll go through. So if we go to the recommendations, they're going to recommend a combo. So when I was an ID fellow, not like I'm not old, but it was back in 2006, there was a lot of arguments whether or not you needed the fusitacine. Is the amphotericin enough? And we had Dr. Bennett from NIH who felt one way. And we had another fungal expert from cross country who felt very different. But there is a study that I'll show you now about combo therapy. And then the alternatives are a whole different mixed bag. I'll tell you just on a side note, my problem with the fusitacine is we try to do it. It's a very marrow toxic drug. A lot of times it's hard to get somebody through two weeks, especially if they're already coming in with some decreased production from their HIV, but we try. So this was published just in 13. This is probably the article that at least pushed it towards the combo when people were bickering. And what it was, it was a three group open label that uh, took 300 folks with cryptococcal. Some people got ampho alone for four weeks. Group two got ampho and fusitacine for two weeks. And group three got um, ampho and fluconazole altogether. And they looked at the differences in outcome. So this was survival. This is your Kaplan-Meier curve. And basically, the group that got the combo of ampho and fusitacine had a um, survival benefit over the AMFO-only group and also over the AMFO plus fluconazole group. So this was some data that kind of settled that argument. It's a pretty well-done study. So the only reason I would go with not starting ARVs is we do have, we have one study, like other things. This is from June 2004, and this was looking at when should you start antiretrovirals if somebody has um, cryptococcal meningitis. Now, obviously, you would probably not be picking antiretrovirals. Your ID person would be on board helping out. But in case the question ever comes up on a round, should we just start antiretrovirals? Now I'm going to tell you, no, you have to wait a little bit. And this is why. So done in sub-Saharan, done in Uganda, HIV-positive folks with cryptococcal meningitis and no previous antiretroviral experience. So they either got early ART, so one to two weeks after their diagnosis, or they were delayed until five weeks after. They all got ampho and fluconazole, not pretty hard to give flucytosine out down in sub-Saharan just because the monitoring that you would need to do, daily labs and things of that nature. You would think you would need daily labs with ampho. They actually do weekly labs down there on ampho, and people do okay with the renal function, surprisingly. Um, this is the Kaplan-Meier for overall survival. Your p-value is good and basically said you will do better if you defer treatment. So the delayed group, the group that waited about five weeks out did better. Interesting, they then did a subgroup, and they looked at, is it everybody, if you delay, will do better, or worse, if you start early? And it was actually the people that had a very low WBC count in the CSF that would do more poorly. And that's a long-standing known prognostic factor for bad outcome with cryptococcal meningitis. So the one thing I always teach my residents on service, they always think meningitis, low WBC in the CSF, great, they're not that sick. It's sort of counterintuitive for crypto. It's a bad it's a bad sign. The other things are very high titers. So our patient oh yeah, please. I know it's probably good. No, I was gonna say, isn't that re related to the surgery part the um the constitutional 
that's the thought of starting the antiretrovirals early that you may, or you're getting an early, I won't call it an early iris, but you're sort of almost like a compensatory response. You're, you're sort of waking up the immune system. That's the thought of why they may not do as well. They've looked and the only study, not the only study, there's a bunch of studies, nothing has shown a benefit and actually one showed an increased mortality. So for cryptococcal, we don't usually do the steroids, which is very different than if somebody had something like a TB meningitis where, where we will use them commonly. It's also very different if people have TB in general, studies show that you might be better off starting antiretrovirals earlier. So they don't all behave the same, which is a little strange. So our gentleman gets the liposomal amphibian and fucytosine. He undergoes uh, LP on the first two days to bring his opening pressure down to 20. His cryptococcal antigen came back very high and he grew cryptococcus, not surprising to us. I just like pictures. So this is sort of your, your GMS stain. This is what India Inc. would look like if you have a good lab. Mm -hmm. So you said over two days, like how quickly can you bring down the stain? I'm gonna give you what the guidelines say on the next one. So on day five, he's doing well enough to be extubated. He's maintained on the same treatment but on day seven starts having severe headache and gradual, gradual onset of diplopia. So what are the following is most appropriate at this time? He needs to get LP'd. We need to stop his fucytosine. We need to change his liposomal amphib to fluconazole, or he needs a brain biopsy. Who likes A? Who likes B? C? D? Unless your house do not do your own brain biopsies. <laughs> so this is pressure related. This has nothing to do with the actual it has to do with the infection because it's causing the high pressure, but this is not failure of treatment. This is clogging of drainage of the CSF. So he's got increased pressures. So what they'll recommend, obviously we're always gonna check an opening pressure if we think about, I would say check it for any meningitis, but especially if you're thinking about cryptococcal meningitis. And the guidelines will say if the pressure is greater than 25 and the patient has symptoms, that you decrease by 50%. If it's very high, they don't tell you what very high is. I would say 50 is very high, so I wouldn't drop him down to 25. He's probably someone that's gonna have serial LPs. I probably drop by no more than 10 per day, to be honest, 10, 15 at most. I don't know if anyone else has any other guideline. Neurology might have some guideline, but for me, I don't wanna drop too quickly, so I might take 10 to 15 off per day. They often, these are the people that end up, if they're that high, they often end up with lumbar drains for some, for some period because a lot of times you're doing dailies for about six, seven days and they're still not coming down. And that's, they're gonna tell you to keep LPing or put in some mechanism until they're stable for at least two days. Okay. Questions on cryptococcal meningitis? We're okay. All right, case three, I give you a 28-year-old man with a history of HIV and asthma brought in by family because of lethargy, confusion, and seven episodes of uh, non-bilious vomiting. He started and progressed, it started and progressed over the last four to five days. He's hypotensive in the ED and tachycardic, drowsy but oriented, and you're called to triage him. His HIV was diagnosed seven years ago, pretty well controlled, at least two months prior it was. His asthma is well controlled on his current regimen, which I have below. He's on uh, Truvada, Adizanavir, Ritonavir, so pretty standard regimen, and he's compliant, and his numbers would indicate that. He's on Adverdiscus, so we can argue he, maybe he needs step-down therapy because he's doing well, but that's what he's on. And he's been taking it for the last two years, doing well, but he ran out two weeks ago, so he stopped cold because he didn't have it. 
and he uses an albuterol MDI, which is about once every two weeks. Um, denies any habits. You find him, he's a little bit hypothermic. He's the same hypotensive that he was reported in tachycardic, respiratory, not an issue. And on exam, basically he has a protuberant abdomen with some diffuse tenderness, nothing surgical, no rebound, very thin extremities, and he's got some scattered bruises on his bilateral arms and legs. And those are his labs. So what do we think might have happened to him? So spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, cryptococcal meningitis, adrenal insufficiency, he's having a reaction to his Truvada or he has mesenteric ischemia. Who likes A? Any A's? Any B's? Any or threes? We got some threes. Any drug reactions? Nobody thinks he has dead gut. He does not have dead gut. So I guess the next question would be, it is adrenal insufficiency, but why is it adrenal insufficiency? So TB, number one cause of adrenal insufficiency worldwide in HIV folks. Disseminated histo, interaction between Truvada and albuterol, or it's the Advir and the Ritonavir. I hear a lot of fours. Right. I can't tell you how many folks I have coming into home clinic when I do home clinic that are still on it's really the ritonavir, that's the booster, that are still on fluticasone. So ritonavir is an inhibitor of the CYP453A4. Fluticasone is a very potent corticosteroid, much more potent. We'll talk about it than Beclo or budesonide. So we see more problems with fluticasone. Um, so you get accumulation of steroid, adrenal suppression. They stop it. They can be sufficient. Also, you also get um, Cushing Cushing light appearance from it. Small case studies. So this was one looking at iatrogenic Cushing's with osteoporosis and uh, secondary adrenal. The only reason I bring it up is just to show you the time periods. It can be someone on, on it as short as two months all the way out to two years. So they don't have to be on it very long to actually have the effects. And the dosages are normal dosages that we use. So it's not super therapeutic doses of the, uh, the fluticasone. This was another study looking at uh, adrenal suppression and Cushing's between, with uh, ritonavir and fluticasone. They had 28 cases, 25 were with inhaled. Um, some were with intranasal, so it doesn't matter. It, it boosts intranasal, it'll boost inhaled, same reason. Um, wide, age, wide age range, same thing with the dose. The dose is normal doses that we, we would be using sometimes. And the average onset was about two and a half months. So once again, they don't have to be on it very long to see the effects. So if we're seeing them in Palm Clinic and nobody tells us that they were started on ARVs, within three months of being on the fluticasone, you may have problems. So I often get the question, what about other corticosteroids? Is it a class effect? Do we have to put, they can't use corticosteroids or I have to change their ARVs? Not necessarily. So this was done in Bethesda. So this is a study done by... Um, I know uh, Joe Kovacs and some other folks are on here, and they basically looked at using a boosted darinavir, which is another PI, having ritonavir there, and looking at beclomethasone. So they took 30 folks. It's a pharmacokinetic study. One just got the beclomethasone. One group got the beclomethasone and just the ritonavir, the booster, and one got a full boosted darinavir. And what they did was they, measure, they measured the active... Uh, component of the beclomethasone, and they did stem testing as outlined. 
So what they found was with the bethlemethasone, there was no increase in active component. If you had just a ritonavir group, you had a slight increase, a twofold, but nothing clinically important. So they felt that bethlemethasone was a safe steroid to use in place of fluticasone. So why fluticasone? It's got the longest binding half-life. It's three times more potent than Beclo, 300 times more potent than budesonide because of large volume of distribution, and it has the most suppressive effect on the HPA axis. So if you have somebody who is on ritonavir or on a boosted protease inhibitor, probably makes sense to avoid fluticasone or have their ID provider change their regimen if they can. Okay, so I give you a 28-year-old Caucasian man with HIV coming to the hospital with malaise, nausea, vomiting for just a few hours. He's got HIV, he's had thrush in the past. Two months ago, his CD4 was 121, viral load was very high. He's on, supposed to be on Bactrim prophylaxis and he's supposed to be on the following ARVs, a Bacavir, Emtricitabine, and a Favrins. His ARVs were started six weeks ago, compliance is questionable. He tells you he had a rash and fatigue last week, stopped the meds, but restarted them just yesterday. He's febrile, he's tachycardic, he's hypotensive. Um, not much on his exam except for some vague generalized abdominal pain. You can see his labs, which are sort of boring, and his CD4 is just as low, if not a little lower, than it was two weeks ago. So which of the following is most likely? So he's having a reaction to Bactrim. He has disseminated MAC. He has a reaction to the Ephavirins. He has urosepsis or a reaction to the Abacavir. Who likes A? Who likes B? C? I got a C. D? E. I got some E's. All right. So not one we see often, but one that's touted, and we're now doing a good job of testing. This is actually an Abacavir reaction. Um, so the hypersensitivity reaction, depending on what studies you read, anywhere from 5 to a little under 10% of all HIV-infected folks. Um, dose doesn't matter, but the onset's usually pretty quick. And um, almost always within the first month and a half. Much more common in the Caucasian population than the black population. Um, primary symptoms like our patient had, that was probably when he had the rash and the other feelings, they're pretty nonspecific. So maybe rash, not everybody gets rash, maybe a little fever, malaise, not feeling well. The problem is when they re-challenge. So when they re-challenge a certain percentage, they'll say up to 25 can show up hypotensive, almost mimicking a sepsis or a SERS-like picture. Um, I've seen two, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. You sort of have to take a really good history if they can tell it to you. And Mark, obviously you're gonna rule out infection and do everything else. Um, it means they shouldn't have the drug. Nowadays, we know about it, so there is testing that we do. So I never start somebody on a Bacavir without running the test. So it's a pretty standard test to do now. Um, who do I put on a Bacavir, why use it? It's probably my people that I don't wanna to give Tenofovir to because of either renal problems or someone I wanna avoid. Tenofovir. It's just for you guys, if somebody shows up and you see it on the list, just put it in the back of your head, ask them, did, did you stop your meds, restart it? Have you ever had a problem with this drug? How long ago did you start this drug? Okay. This is not for you to memorize. This is just to show you there are a lot of drugs, and this isn't even all of them. This is probably missing what's come out in the past three months. So it's my reminder to say, just do a good drug, drug check. Okay. What do we think this is? It's not the best picture. Yeah, so I hear Dr. McCurdy says Stevens-Johnson. That's what it'd be looking for, trying to look inside the mouth. 
sort of the rash, what drugs do we think about HIV-wise? I went and not we're talking just HIV-wise. So Bactrim's a big one. So people on Bactrim Profi or even treatment dose, but even Profi can do it. On the HIV, on the ART end, Nevirapine's a drug we don't use much anymore, but Efavirenz is pretty common, right? That's Sestiva, that's part of Atripla. So something, if somebody got recently started on an Efavirenz-containing regimen, something to think about when they come in. Um, these are the life-threatening, so I'm gonna skip these because a lot of these are older drugs that we're not using much. I already pointed out probably the more important one, which is the systemic hypersensitivity reaction. Um, case five, I give you a 34-year-old HIV-positive homeless man diagnosed with pulmonary TB. CD4 count when he was diagnosed was 20 and his HIV viral load was 750K. He gets four drug therapy. Two months later, normal chest uh, x-ray sputum is negative on AFD staining, so he's taking his meds, getting DOT, the whole nine, and he started on antiretroviral therapy with a triple or the components of. At a four-week check-in, he's doing well with compliance, but he comes to clinic two months later, two months right after starting his atriple, complaining of chest pain and fever, febrile, tachycardic, um, obviously hypoxic and tachypnic. Promptly placed on non-invasive positive pressure and respiratory status gets better. Absolute CD4 is now 166, and his viral load is 250. You're called for triage. That's his x-ray. Not the best x-ray, but kind of zoomed in there. And that's what he has going on. What would you recommend regarding this patient? Continuous TB therapy, give him steroids and withhold his ARVs until symptoms and chest x-ray are better. It's likely MDR-TB, change his TB regimen and continue his ARVs. Stop his TB meds and start him on community-acquired treatment or continue his ARVs and TB therapy without change. Check a sputum to rule out MDR-TB and add steroids if he deteriorates. Does anybody like B or C? Okay, so we're sort of between A and D. Who likes A? Who likes D? No right answer. So this is one where people argue when, when do you stop the ARVs, when do you not? What constitutes a severe enough reaction to stop the ARVs? We do know this is probably Iris. We saw his CD4 count climb. More importantly, we saw his viral load drop. So he's probably having an immune reconstitution syndrome. Um, so if you look at the definitions, they're going to call it what it says there. It's basically you either wake up a sleeping beast, some infection you didn't know the person had, or you knew it, you were treating it, but it still wakes up. Um, depends what you read. Um, Dr. Soretti at NIH, this, she's probably the one in the area that does a ton on it. Um, studies will tell you anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of people will experience some degree of virus. Seems high to me, but I don't know what we're using as a marker. Um, how they show up really depends on what the underlying infection is, right? If it's cryptococcus that's hiding, it's going to be maybe a meningitis picture. If it's like our gentleman with TB, it's probably going to be a pulmonary disseminated TB. The nonspecific symptoms, it's the fevers, chills, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. Lymph nodes grow pretty quickly. They have them. Um, there are criteria. So you basically need to start with a very low CD4, except for TB. TB is the one that doesn't follow the rule. So if our gentleman had a CD4 of... 250, 300, it could still be iris. Things like MAC, things like PCP, usually they'll say you have to have a CD4 less than 100. Um, a positive virologic, so the drop in the viral load, the climb in the CD4, you have to take everything else off the table. 
Oh, sorry. And usually within two months. There are some cases of people being as far out as four to six months out, but usually within the first two months, you're going to see this kind of reaction. This is by no means an inclusive list. It's, it's a quite long list of things that can flare up, but these are just some of them. The one that we ran into trouble is we actually woke up a hepatitis B, although we were treating it. So it was sort of strange, but the patient's labs went haywire despite us having him on a, a regimen that should have covered his hep B. Um, risk factors, younger males, the worse the HIV when you start, the, worse, the higher the chance for iris and worse prognosis. So lower CD4, higher viral load, very rapid changes in the uh, virologic and immunologic status, folks who haven't had ARVs before. And um, this is where sort of waiting, like the cryptococcus we talked about, that's sort of some of the thoughts about why you might wait a few weeks before you start. Um, so treatment, you treat the underlying, obviously. Most cases you can get through without stopping heart. You, him, you can argue he's pretty hypoxic. Do we need to stop it? And that's where the, the argument would come. I'd probably see how he does over a couple of days, to be honest. Um, and NSAIDs are the first line for the nonspecific things. Some people end up needing steroids, but there's no good guidance on when would you pull the trigger on steroids? When would you stop the ARVs? For us, a lot of times they end up, if they're sick enough to end up in the ICU, the ARVs often get held because we don't have a route to give them. A lot of the pills can't be crushed, not a lot of IV formulations. This is a question I, this is sort of my rambling, but this is a question I get asked often. What do we do with the ARVs? Should we, or I get the call, patient's pretty sick, can we start ARVs right now? And this is my own opinion, this is not anybody's evidence. So I say if the patient is already on heart and you have a means to give them the medicine, and the medicine is not causing their problem. You don't think it's a side effect or a react or a, uh, you know, the cause of their problems. I say give it to them. Um, the problem would be, like I said, there's not a lot of things that can be crushed or given in IV form. So, you have the patient who comes in with the COPD exacerbation, not intubated, can still take pills. I would probably say give it to them. How about starting? There's no clear guidelines. I do mine case to case. So if it's something that only ARVs can help, PML, high van, cardiomyopathy, and I think they're gonna have good follow-up, I start because I think the earlier you start, probably for them the better. Um, what do I worry about in the back of my mind? You worry about things like iris if we're missing an underlying infection that we don't know about. And in the critically ill, I always worry about absorption and drug-drug interactions. How about survival? Depends on what you come in, what you come in for. Um, generally, pretty good though. I mean, if you look at survival back in the '80s, this is when PCP was predominating. You're lucky if you had a 20% survival rate for patients admitted. Now you're climbing. PCP still not great. This is back from 2009, published in Chester. They're still going to give you about a 50/50. I'll tell you, I see plenty of people who come in with really bad PCP that leave the hospital and do well. My most recent one was a guy, he had a CD4 of two coming in, viral load off the charts, bilateral pneumothoraces, ended up having to get deced on both lungs. He was in the hospital a good three months. He's now undetectable, good viral, uh, a good CD4 count, and able to work a pretty physical job. He collects trash. So he's, he's working and did well. So I always throw one in for needle sticks and things of that nature. So what about work exposure? Remember, all of these that I bolded, they're not a problem for you. So you're not getting it from that stuff. Your risk depends if it's percutaneous or mucous membrane. It's always the, it's the 3.3 .3 rule. So 0.3 if it's a percutaneous exposure, 
just go to Akel. Um, if not, go to the ED if it's after hours. I'll tell you, I was a second year resident, stuck myself with a, a stitching needle, which is sort of the common ones we're getting now because we haven't gotten rid of our suture sets yet for when we're putting in central lines. CD4 was four. I waited the weekend. I'm like, I feel fine. He's fine. I don't know if I got myself. And now I would never have done that. I started taking, back then it was taking Combavir, which made you feel really awful. But I, I took it for four weeks, but I waited 96 hours, which when I look at the literature is stupid. I probably would have been fine anyway if I didn't take it, but just go. The, the regimens now, especially the recommended, which is Truvada Raltegravir, for four weeks, very well tolerated, not a lot of GI effect, side effects. So I tell people, if you have a doubt that you may have stuck yourself, just take the meds for four weeks. It gives you peace of mind. And they work well if, if there is a problem. So my take-homes, the biggest one is patients with HIV nowadays are more likely to be admitted with non-HIV problems. Always check for drug-drug interactions and just look out for iris because it happens. And with that, I am done, but I will take questions. Mike. I don't know how much uh, delve into it, but can you just address HIV and uh, pulmonary hypertension? You see a lot of that as well um, in terms of management or like what the process is behind that's a hard, that's a That's an hour lecture. It's a hard question because I've talked to people, I'm by no means a pulmonary hypertension expert, but I've talked to people who feel that really is a backing for HIV causing pulmonary hypertension. I still meet people that manage hypertension that aren't sure that it's an actual risk factor. I think it is. Um, there's no good studies looking at the meds we use for for sort of the group ones, the traditional group one, the PAH. There's no good studies in HIV folks. We actually thought about, we uh, George Ruiz, who does a lot of our pulmonary hypertension, we sat down to look at a study, seeing if we could get maybe sponsoring to actually do a good study. but. I don't have it. My guess is if you look at the studies where they look, it looks like plexopathy and it looks like the same pathology for the most part as the patients with uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension. So the thought process is the drugs probably would work. I don't know about the drug-drug interactions and all, the, and all that stuff, but so. The uh, specific guidance on care of the pregnant ill pregnancy even tougher. I mean, if it was with palm hypertension. No. So, I mean, this is my own, my, my own opinion. If we're talking antiretrovirals, I probably find a regimen that I can give crushed or IV to try to give them a regimen to try to protect baby. Now, as we know, we worry about absorption. We don't know how absorption is. I don't know that we manage them any differently, except for I would really, that's that's the population I'm making a push to get ARVs in to protect the baby. And there's one, so there's one you avoid, there's, there's certain that there's a bunch that are approved to use in pregnancy. Okay. And the guidelines sort of lay out what, the one that they'll tell you to avoid early before organogenesis, that's that's a Favrin's. Okay. So you don't give a triple, at least within the first eight weeks is what they will, is what they'll tell you. Okay. A lot of times we have a CD4 count from like a few months ago. Uh -huh. um, what is there a rule of thumb for how rapidly that might potentially drop? Yeah, so the question, I, I get that a lot because we know CD4 can drop in acute illness, right? I look at percentages. So when we get ill, it's not just CD4 that drops. It will be our whole CD, you know, CD4, CD8, CD3, everything. 
anytime you get a CD4, it gives you a percentage next to it. So a CD4 of 14, roughly a uh, percentage of 14, roughly corresponds to 200. So if somebody comes in and let's say they were 352 weeks ago or two months ago, very unlikely, even if they weren't taking their meds that they've dipped down into the hundreds, I'll usually look at the percentage to see what happened. CD4 usually falls, if it's not in critical illness, usually falls pretty slowly. Viral load's the one that will will take off pretty quickly. So, But there's no rule of thumb to say like it'll fall by so much each month. Everybody's a little bit different. Um, when in doubt, if they weren't below 200 and they now are, I make sure I still make sure they don't have PCP. I still put them on prophylaxis until it comes up if I don't know. Now, if I have a CD4 count of 100, but their percentage is 30, then I scratch my head because probably, that's probably the acute illness if the percentage of, of cells is that high. All right, thank you, guys. Thanks.